Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments that we have together. We pray now as we turn our attention to your word, the immutable truth recorded for us in this inerrant record of your glorious revelation carried through the ages by your servants under the inspiration and by the power of the Holy Spirit to record, to interpret, and to apply the great truths, Lord, of our salvation. Stir our hearts, Lord, for for the affections that are worthy of your word and stir our minds to understand its depths and profundity. We pray in all this you would be glorified. Your people would be equipped to tell the world, Lord, that you have come and that in you is salvation for, for sin, is redemption and forgiveness of the same. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord, what a privilege to open the scriptures for a few moments together. Let us do so by considering Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Speaking of Christ, the apostle records, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. This morning, as we contemplate these words, there is no possible way to do them justice in a few moments, but perhaps we can at least whet our appetites for the richness that is represented in this record here. These five short verses vacuum pack and compress the deepest, most profound theology, the richest and most incredible life-saving truth that we could possibly imagine. This is good for us to consider, I think, this time of year. After all, perhaps around Christmas time or leading up to the holidays, the most familiar pictures of Christ In our culture broadly, generally speaking, are the traditional associations of Jesus with Christmas time. You know, the pictures that cover the cards and the nativity scenes and the movies and all the sentimentality, the richness of tradition that surrounds days that we are soon approaching. Major scenes are magical and tender, the kings, the shepherds, the various characters of the nativity scene and story. They lend themselves to great costumes for kids' plays. Strains of away in a manger and silent nights sound great when the lights are turned down low and the fire is bright. But I wonder how many of us contemplate during this season where and who Christ was before the Christmas story unfolded. Where was Christ and who was he before he came to earth, taking on the form or taking on the form of a servant born in flesh? Here incarnate, Emmanuel, where, God with us, where and who was Christ before the Christmas story? Furthermore, where and how does he demonstrate his glory in that act yet today 
For that matter, what about the comprehensive decree of the triune God fulfilled in the Incarnation, that is, fulfilled in Christmas? So many of the New Testament books begin with a triumphal proclamation of the person and work of the entire, if you will, the comprehensive, the full-orbed Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. Think of it, the famous prologues in Scripture that, much like our text today, declare with powerful and rich theology that students of the Word of God diligently peruse their entire lifetime and do not exhaust their depths. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and so on. Hebrews 1, remember here too, in times past, God spoke to us in more limited ways by prophets who preceded in more shadowy types and figures. But in these last days, He has sent, yes, His Son. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is, in the words of the author of Hebrews, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited, inherited is much more excellent than theirs. We read, we heard of the announcing of Jesus Christ on that glorious evening or morning, whenever it was, when the angels populated the realms of glory and announced to the shepherds looking on that unto you a child is born. And they sang the praises worthy of His name. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, demonstrated His glory with the myriads of the celestial beings filling up the stadiums of the skies, announcing a baby was born. One day, that baby would demonstrate His superior glory in surpassing that scene itself, such that no angel, no multitude of angels, could ever compete or compare to His glory because of His act of incarnation. Thus, in the beginning of John, the beginning of Hebrews, the beginning of Ephesians, the opening of Revelation in our text today in Colossians 1, we see these before and after pictures, if you will, of the hero of Christmas, Jesus Christ. And they provide necessary perspectives so often lost in, our, in the mere or on the mere tradition and sentimentality of the season. So let us turn for a few moments tonight to Colossians where again the Apostle Paul grants us a sneak peek through the immortal words of divine revelation behind the curtain of eternity into the realm of the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What do we find in this text? Two things I submit to you this morning. First of all, we find the glory of Christ in His pre-incarnate state. We find the glory of Christ Proclaimed here before He came to earth. The eternal Son, forever existing with the Father, was responsible for th certain things, and His glory was perceived through the same. Secondly, we find in the text that He incarnationally, if you will, secured more glory still. In His act of veiling for a time, if you will, His divinity, but not losing it, yet adding to Himself flesh, being born of a virgin, taking on the form of a servant, as the Scriptures say, the God-man, Jesus Christ and Christmas, incarnationally secured. That is, He secured in that momentous, redemptive, historical, singular act more glory, if it could be said, 
than he had before. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is why we are gathered here tonight. This is why the angels worshipped. And this is why we ought to worship. Why do we worship? First of all, because he is the image of the invisible God. And as such, three things. He is the glory of creation. He is the agent of creation. And he is the sovereign of creation. In our text today, Colossians 1.15, the word declares Christ, he is, of Christ he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Pausing there, what could our author mean? Paul means to say in the term firstborn that he is the preeminent one. This is not to say he was created, that indeed is heresy, but instead the firstborn is a picture in Scripture of the principal heir of the estate. The firstborn is the one to whom the estate, the inheritance, belongs. All that creation is, the vast realms of glory, the accumulated awe that we see as we look with our probing telescopes into the furthest reaches of, of the uh, skies of the universe, all of that belongs to Christ. It is His. It is His inheritance. Yet the rewards of the Lamb's suffering are greater than just these. Not only does all the material realm serve to give Him glory, but you and I, redeemed, blood-bought saints, are called to do the same in a special and a particular way. In this sense, He is the firstborn not only of all creation, but of new creation. He is the principal heir of the estate. He is deserving of all our praise. He has all the preeminence. It goes further to say in our text, that not only is everything created by Him, but it is created for Him. The purpose of creation is to lift up to Him a chorus, a symphony, a crescendo of glorious praise. This was literally the case on that night that Mark read of in Luke chapter 2. It was literally the case in two ways. That is, the heavens, creation, declared the glory of God both implicitly and, ex and explicitly on Christmas day in the, in the heavenlies. Implicitly in that, in Psalm 19, the word declares, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows its handiwork. Day after day, utter, utter speech, night after night, reveals knowledge. All creation, by virtue of its existence, preaches a sermon of the genius, the power, and the wisdom of the God who created it all, the God, Jesus Christ. But not only that, but these realms of glory, the skies and the firmament itself, served as a theater to explicitly declare the glory of God that night, as the angels found there a suitable place to announce that a child had been born, a son had been given. And in the words of the prophets of old, the government would be upon his shoulders, and he should be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God. Secondly, he is the agent of creation. Christ is the image of the invisible God, as such, He is the glory of creation. He is the agent of creation. As we have said, this means that He is responsible for all that we see. In fact, we see this scope and range of His power to create demonstrated in a few things listed in verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In this phrase, He is before, and in Him all things hold together. 
we find that He is not only the Creator, but He is the Sustainer of all the universe. There are a couple questions that give scientists these days who limit themselves, foolishly so, to the tools of empiricism. They give the, uh, and, and they come up with questions that tie them into incoherent knots. Questions like, where did all of this come from in the first place? And secondly, what holds the universe together? Was this time-chance collision of molecules that started at the Big Bang responsible for itself? How in the world could that be so when it, everywhere we look, within the reaches of space, even in the microbiology of the, of the uh, disciplines of science, we see nothing but order, nothing but a finely tuned, directed design that holds the universe and our very beings together. Where did this come from and what keeps it from falling apart? I listened to a debate yesterday. I'm halfway through. It's interesting. A Christian is debating a PhD, multiple, you know, awarded scientist who is an atheist. The Christian made his case with the following. He says that the Christian worldview presupposes that the universe is understandable. A scientist goes out, he looks into the reaches of space, and he determines that the universe can be understood. No science takes place without that premise. Secondly, he noted that we are the types of beings who can note these kinds of things. We actually have an expectation for understanding it. How is this possible? Two things so far. It's because it was created by God, therefore it's understandable. Secondly, we're made in His image. As the Imago Dei, we are the types of beings who can understand it because God has given us the ability to perceive His revelation even through nature. Finally, he says... No science proceeds without considering a value in understanding the universe in the first place. He says, and, he, and rightly so, that only the Christian can ground all three of those premises before any science, any observation of the universe takes place. And so we find, even in the testimony of the sciences, that Christ himself is the glory of creation and the agent of creation. And because of this, we can appreciate the power revealed of our Lord Jesus Christ through creation. Finally, as the image of the invisible God, as such, He is the sovereign of creation. Notice this peculiar list that the author chooses to highlight, the things that Christ is responsible for, not only things in earth, on earth and in heaven, not only the visible and the invisible, but four things besides, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Christ has created all thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Do you not suppose that Paul is laboring to show his people, those who are reading and we who are reading today, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords? That is certainly the case. Because he is the author, because he is the finisher, because he is the agent, because he is the sustainer, he is the sovereign of all creation. So all rulers, all authorities, all kings, all nations, all tribes, all tongues must bow before him. He is the one, after all, who has all government on his shoulders, who rules and reigns in the heavenlies, and is and will be, and finally it will be manifestly so, placing every enemy under his feet, becoming his footstool, until the day arrives when the great judgment comes and the harvest barns are full with the reaping of the harvest, and all who did not confess faith in him receive their just due. Why? Because he is the sovereign of creation. This, I submit to you, is the pre-incarnate glory that was demonstrated before Christ even took on flesh and came to earth at Christmas. Secondly, we add to this the following. Christ is the head of the body, 
the church. And as such, he is, first of all, the firstborn of the dead. Verse 18, again, speaking of our Lord, Paul says, And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This morning we read in, our mess, in my message this morning from Hebrews chapter 10. And in Hebrews 10, it, the author associates the broken body of Christ with the veil. That is, through the broken body of Christ and the torn veil, he associates them together. We have free access to the holy realms of glory, communion, fellowship, and favor with a holy and almighty God. The moment when that happened, I, it, I was recalling this this week, especially as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 27, I believe verse 51, what happens? The elements of creation bow to its agent and Lord. There is an earthquake, the rocks split, the skies grow dark, and Christ gives up the ghost, as it were. He yields His Spirit to the Father. But even there, we see His glory and power revealed. The very next thing that happens immediately upon His death the curtain is split in the temple. It is torn from top to bottom. And saints who had been dead for years and centuries arise from their tombs and walk around and appear to many at that time. How could this be the case? It is because Christ, in that act on Calvary, proved He is the head of the body of the church, and as such, He is the firstborn from the dead. Because of His death, we have resurrection life. Secondly, He is the head of the body, the church, and as he has the fullness of God in him. In verse 19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a profound and powerful thought. And the greatest minds could pool all the resources and never exhaust this singular miracle of cosmic history that God became a man, entered his own creation, Emmanuel, God with us, took on flesh. But it happened, and it was necessary. It happened in history, and because of this action, we have salvation. You remember in the Gospels again, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus Christ is illuminated in at least a vestige of His pre-incarnate glory, where three privileged disciples get to see Him, and the refulgence and the radiance of the glory is blinding to their eyes, and with Him, demonstrating His power of resurrection, stand two saints, Elijah and Moses. At this moment, they could perhaps see, with the Holy Spirit bringing it to their attention later, a glimpse of the glory of Christ. He is the fullness of God in man. And when He walked this earth as a humble servant, the suffering one, taking on the sin of the world, we must never forget that He was indeed God-man, the God-man, and in His glory, and through that act, He now retains greater glory if it could be said still. He was, in fact, bodily raised from the dead, and remains today the God-man in glory in the realms of heaven, waiting for us as the first fruits of all who will be raised from the dead, because He is the fullness of God in man. And finally tonight, as we consider these glorious truths, because Christ is the head of the body, the church, as such, He is the reconciler of all things. Our text closes with this gospel note in verse 20. It says, and through him, that is Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
That is to say, again, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not just in creation in the first place. Not just in sustaining all the complicated systems that are involved with all of nature and even our bodies and beings. Not just this, but in fact, everything he will retain the preeminence in salvation itself. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything, whether in heaven or on earth, eternal or the material realm, will be reconciled. How? Through the gospel, that is, by the purchasing power of his own shed blood. We remember this is part and parcel of his kingdom. As a verse prior has stated, chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God the Father, through the act of sending his son and redeeming us from the power of sin, has defeated death through his own death on the cross, thus delivered us and transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption, he has purchased us and the forgiveness of our sins, them having been paid for by his blood. Truly we have peace on earth and goodwill to men. And the power of this reconciliation will increase until all things are reconciled with God's perfect foreordained purposes and decree. And all of earth and heaven will give him praise and glory. And you and I will join those who have gone before and those who will yet assemble at the marriage supper of the Lamb, singing forever, worthy is the one that was slain. Let me ask you, do you have peace with God tonight? Have you been transferred into His kingdom? Have you been reconciled to Him? How can you be sure? Turn to the Scriptures. Turn from your sins. Place your faith and trust in the one who created the world and entered his creation and satisfied the just payment your sins deserve. And I trust these descriptions that we read of in Colossians today of Jesus Christ will cause your heart to leap in praise and worship. O come, saints, let us adore him.